0: Our analysis was greatly bolstered, moreover, by our becoming familiar with the work of domestic revisionism of an exciting group of historians who had studied under William Appleman Williams at the University of Wisconsin. Williams himself, in The Contours of American History, Williams' students, who founded Studies on the Left in 1959, and particularly the work of Williams' student Gabriel Kolko in his monumental Triumph of Conservatism, 1963, changed our view of the 20th century American past and hence of the genesis and nature of the current American system. From them, we learned that all of us believers in the free market had erred in believing that somehow, deep down, big businessmen were really in favor of laissez-faire, and that their deviations from it, obviously clear and notorious in recent years, were either sellouts of principle to expedients or the result of brainwashing and infusing of guilt into these businessmen by liberal intellectuals. This is the general view on the right. In the remarkable phrase of Ayn Rand, big business is, quote, America's most persecuted minority. Persecuted minority indeed. To be sure, there were charges plenty against big business, but it took the Williams-Colco analysis, and particularly the detailed investigation by Colco, to portray the true anatomy and physiology of the American scene. As Colco pointed out, All the various measures of federal regulation and welfare statism beginning in the progressive period that left and right alike have always believed to be a mass movement against big business are not only backed to the hilt by big business at the present time, but were originated by it for the very purpose of shifting from a free market to a cartelized economy. Under the guise of regulations against monopoly and for the public welfare, Big business has succeeded in granting itself cartels and privileges through the use of government. Those excerpts I just read to you are from Murray Rothbard's book, Betrayal of the American Right, which talks about how the so-called old right in American politics, which was um, a conservative movement that was much more anti-war and anti-imperialist, in addition to being anti-big government at home, was in the 50s and early 60s taken over by the so-called new right of National Review, Um, The the conservatives whose main defining feature is their extreme hawkishness and who only kind of pay lip service to the free market, but it's not really their priority as much as starting a new war is. And those uh, segments I just read to you were Murray Rothbard talking about how in the early 60s, he and many of his um, libertarian friends and associates at the time, of which there are really not that many, um, started to shift as they were either voluntarily left or were purged from the right by the likes of Bill Buckley and company at National Review, a lot of these libertarians, including Rothbard, started to gravitate more to the so-called new left and started to see that the new left, though not 100 percent libertarian, actually had more in common with libertarians than did the new right of National Review. This is Prof. CJ once again swinging the Louisville slugger of truth against the rotting pumpkin of propaganda, and this is the Dangerous History Podcast. This is episode 54, which I'm entitling Three Leftist Historians Every Libertarian Should Read. So that means today we're sort of taking a look at historiography. The three historians I'm going to talk about were considered part of the new left in academic historiography, which had a strong influence on history in the second half of the 20th century, especially in the sixties and seventies. By the way, before I continue, I just wanted to point out, I I apologize very much. It's been about two weeks since I did my last uh, episode, episode 53, and I meant to do this episode a lot sooner, but remember I had that illness that kept me out for a while. And even though the, the illness itself never came back, it had this like lingering effect on my my lungs and voice box and what have you where, I mean, here it is about a month after I initially got sick and I still have a bit of a cough and I still have some residual hoarseness. So what happened was I got sick and then, you know, I took antibiotics and stuff like that and, and got somewhat better. And then I had to go back to work because I had missed a bunch of days of work. I couldn't miss any more days of work this semester. Um, so, I went back to work and then what happens is I'm teaching, you know, 2-3 classes a day depending on what day of the week and talking to a room full of, you know, 20-30 students with no I don't have any kind of microphone or anything like that at work. So what happened was, man, I just got hoarse and you can probably still hear it in my voice, but man, it's better than it was. So ugh, for for the last, you know, week and a half or whatever, you know, I got episode 53 done, but then after that it's just been I haven't. I haven't had the voice. I haven't had the voice to do a podcast. So, still a bit hoarse now, but um, you know, good enough for uh, non-government work, I, I suppose. So I hope you'll bear with me. And who knows? Maybe uh, I sound, you know, smoky and raspy and sexy with this hoarse voice, right? We'll, we'll just we'll just pretend that. So anyway, we're talking a little bit of historiography, and if you're not familiar with that term, it really just means the various ways that historians have analyzed and interpreted history and it could either be referring to just history in general or it can be uh, more specific like you can talk about the historiography of the civil war which would mean you know what are the major trends that have happened over the years of historians looking at the civil war from particular perspectives and and um, identifying particular themes and and so on and you know different ideological takes on it so that's that's historiography, right? You're looking at how historians have analyzed and interpreted and expressed the various narratives of history. And so this group that we're looking at today is uh, some of the leading headliners of what might be considered the new left in American history in the mid to late 20th century. Now, even though I absolutely do not agree with these historians I'm going to talk about on every single issue, I still find them very much worth reading. And I find that the values of their insights far outweigh the occasional disagreements I have with them on certain issues. Besides which, you know, if you want to have a, a healthy mind, right? If you want a mind that's going to be um able to grasp a lot of concepts, able to look at things from many angles, able to really analyze things independently. You have to read and think about ideas that you know at least at the time you're probably not going to agree with. as long as we're talking about you know high quality things um, of of good intellectual value that are at least based on a framework of of reason and evidence and so on, it's good for you, I think, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, it's, it's good for anybody to fairly regularly read and think about ideas that you know you're probably not going to agree with, um, but to do so in a, in a fair and open-minded way to consider what they're saying, because A, if at the end of it all you still don't agree with them uh, on something, you've still learned probably more about what you really believe and why, and B, if you do so in a fair and open minded way, occasionally you'll find that, oh gee whiz, you know, I, I guess I was wrong about some particular issue or whatever, or or my my, you know, philosophical or ethical take on something was totally wrong. I didn't have the evidence I needed, or I wasn't considering a point of view I I should have considered, those sorts of things. I mean, you know, the things that I believe now in terms of ideology and history and politics and all this, they are not the same things on most issues that I believed 10 or 15 years ago. And I think I'm, I'm a better person for having gone through and considered lots of different points of view on many issues. And, you know, the, the most important part of critical thinking is, and I'm, I'm not the first person to say this by far, the most important part of critical thinking is the attitude the willingness to reconsider your own beliefs depending on evidence or, or the logic of someone else's argument. And I think it was Aristotle who said something along the lines of, it is a mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it. So I highly recommend regularly reading things you don't entirely agree with. I urge you to Resist the urge to get involved in intellectual tunnel vision. And I say this as much to remind myself as to remind you, because as much as anybody else, I can be prone to confirmation bias if I just sort of let myself go on autopilot and only read books and articles I know I'm going to absolutely 100% agree with. There's no room for growth. There's no room for learning. In a lot of cases, if you only read things you already know you're going to agree with before you even read them. There were a lot of things about grad school that I really didn't like, but one of the few things that I'll say, you know, really in its favor was that in grad school, I was required to read on a regular basis things that did not agree with my pre-existing biases at that time, and I really do think that I benefited from that. Sometimes I changed my mind based on those readings, and other times I didn't, but I feel that my mind always benefited as long as what I was reading was, you know, good stuff. And and what do I mean by good stuff? When I say read contrary points of view, I don't mean read just, you know, randomly everything that that you think you're going to disagree with. I still think you should try as much as possible to weed out non-quality things and read good stuff. So what do I mean by that? Well, my only rules of thumb regarding reading things I'm pretty sure I'm going to disagree with, at least in part, is that I won't bother if, A, the author is clearly not intelligent and or not knowledgeable about the subject in question. You know, I'm not going to read the economics opinions of someone who clearly doesn't know much or anything of economics, I'm not going to read the opinions on foreign policy of somebody who doesn't really know any of the history of the places they're talking about. I also will not read things if the author is not even really trying to use reason and evidence and logic to back up his or her arguments. If you have a case where somebody is just asserting things as if they're self-evidently true because I said them, or somebody who's using nothing but logical fallacies to express their opinions on something, I'm not going to read that. I just don't care. I also will not read things if I can tell or figure out early on in reading it that the author is being disingenuous, if the author is trying to pass off arguments as truly being his or hers that are not or really at least do not seem to be their real arguments. And also, I will not read things that are clearly party hackery of whatever party i don't care right if it's just a case of someone's just cheerleading for one party and bashing the other and that's it and they're just you know moving all the evidence to to mold to their pre-existing goal of persuading you to back their party and oppose the other party i'm just not interested in party hackery i am not And that's one thing I'll say definitely in favor of the three leftist historians I'm talking about in this episode is they are not party hacks. They are willing to um, bash Democrats quite frequently on many issues and. Likewise, though they're certainly not very friendly to Republicans either, they will on occasion give credit to or say something in favor of a particular Republican on a particular issue or in one particular historical instance. These are not party hack cheerleaders. Now, these three historians I'm going to talk about today are William Appleman Williams, Gabriel Kolko, and Howard Zinn. Those are fairly well known names to anyone who's serious into history. Zinn is probably the best known amongst non-academic people. Um, If you have any experience at all in academic history, um, at least in terms of American history, you've probably heard of all three. And even though these three historians are not libertarians, at least not on every issue, their analysis actually lines up with libertarianism on, I think, more important issues than they don't line up with. And some of the issues where they're clearly in line with and why somebody like Murray Rothbard would say such nice things about these sorts of historians is very important issues such as war, civil liberties, corporatism, decentralism, um, sort of what, what you might call power elite analysis, or um, analyzing the establishment in this country from a critical perspective. On all these issues, these guys line up, you know, in, in a pretty tight Venn diagram with somebody like Murray Rothbard, who's, you know, considered like Mr. Libertarian. So that's why I thought it'd be good to talk about these historians a bit, some of their work, and um, urge you to if any of these topics or any of these themes sound interesting you know go read some of these books these are these are great books I'm going to be mentioning here. I'm going to put links to the the books I'm talking about and, and some other related books in the show notes for this episode on my website Profcj.org but uh, let's go ahead and jump into it and talk about our first new left historian that libertarians should read and that is William Appleman Williams. William Appleman Williams was born in Iowa in 1921. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and after serving in the military for a few years, earned a master's and Ph.D. degree uh, in history from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And for the sort of the prime years of his career, when he was really doing uh, much of his publishing and so on, he taught at that university, University of Wisconsin-Madison, whose history program, by the way, is still one of the best regarded in the Midwest to this day. Now, um, after a number of years uh, teaching graduate students and doing work at Madison, he, I think sometime around the late 60s, left there and relocated to Oregon, where he taught at Oregon State University until 1988 when he retired, uh, and he died two years later after that in 1990. A lot of Williams' work was on American foreign policy, though he also did some work on issues having to do with decentralization. By the way, during his later years at Oregon, he advocated, among other things, returning to the Articles of Confederation as a way to try and drastically decentralize the American system. While he was a leftist and, and believed in um, some version, it's it, it kind of hazy, but he believed in some version of, you know, democratic Um, welfare state type of of policies. He was um, not, not a typical mainstream leftist because he was a radical decentralist. He didn't like the idea of one massive leviathan in D.C. controlling hundreds of millions of people. He thought that, you know, people could help themselves and help their neighbors much more genuinely and effectively if they're actually their neighbors if they're actually, you know, their own little local community setting up uh, programs or procedures or whatever to try and help each other out. Now, Murray Rothbard had uh, many positive things to say about Williams's work, um, such as the passage I read from The Betrayal of the American Right*. In fact, in that book, Rothbard credited Williams with converting him to Cold War revisionism in the early 1960s. And Cold War revisionism is the idea that the Cold War is not something that's 100% the Russians' fault, which is pretty much what American historians and the American mainstream media had been saying in the Cold War up until the early 60s. That was the consensus that, quote-unquote, everybody believed. And Williams was one of the first major academic historians to take issue with that and to Bring up facts and things that indicated that not only is the USSR not 100 percent to blame for the Cold War happening. In fact, there's a strong case that the United States actually deserves more of the blame. And, and uh, Williams looks back in American history to various trends and things that have been going on for decades prior to the Cold War and then says that the Cold War is just the outcome of those policies and ideas being followed for several generations. Now, Williams's most famous book is The Tragedy of American Diplomacy, first published in 1959. Williams's basic thesis in tragedy is that around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, the United States began following a foreign policy that was more blatantly imperial than anything it had followed before. Now, Williams also admits that a lot of these imperial impulses were in America from the get-go. When you look at westward expansion, I mean, that's that's just imperialism. It's just, we don't like to call it that, but that's what it is. You know, when you're taking over territories and lands and putting them under your, your authority, and these are territories and lands that had not been under your authority before, that's imperialism. These ideas of manifest destiny and westward expansionism and all that, uh, Williams would say these are precursors to the more blatant imperialism that comes by the late 19th century and for more on these sorts of issues look back to look back to my episode on the large policy which was back towards the beginning of this podcast it was let's see it was all the way back at episode six the large policy where I talked about some of the ideas and motivations that around the turn of the of the 19th to the 20th century, caused many American leaders to favor a much more active and aggressive and really downright imperial foreign policy. So Williams mostly starts his narrative from there, though, again, he acknowledges some of the earlier things that showed a lot of the same trends. And he talks about the famous Frederick Jackson Turner frontier thesis, where um, I think it was in 1890, the United States Census Bureau Officially said the frontier had closed, meaning there was no longer an identifiable frontier in the United States where like civilization ended, which was one of the things the census had done ever since the start of the country. Um, They had, you know, besides counting the people in the various states and all that stuff, they had identified the frontier line and, and sort of said, look, around here is where kind of civilization stops and past that, you know, everybody's either an Indian or they're Jeremiah Johnson. And the historian Frederick Jackson Turner wrote this very influential essay read by a lot of these large policy guys. And I want to say the essay was published in 1893, something like that. It was called On the Significance of the Frontier to American History. And in that essay, Turner argued that Americans had been had gotten their characteristics, particularly their good characteristics of being um, democratic and self-reliant and individualistic and but still kind of egalitarian and, you know, all the the weird mix of things that people always point out as like, what makes an American, an American? And Turner says that these had all come from the fact that there was always a frontier, which people could go to, to find new lands and find new opportunities and remake themselves. But that now that there's no longer a frontier zone, America might be in trouble because what's it going to do now? Where's it going to get all of its great characteristics if there's no frontier to go, quote unquote, civilize? And so I'm not sure how much, it's been a while since I read that entire essay, but I'm not sure how much Turner himself specifically advocated a solution to that. I, I remember the essay ending on kind of an ambivalent note, like, well, here comes the next chapter of American history and what do we do now? But a lot of people, particularly the guys who later become part of that large policy clique I talked about in episode six, they read Turner and they take it as, oh, my God, we're running out of frontier. Our society and our economy and so on are in trouble because we no longer have you know, endless virgin land to move into and to start exploiting. So, well, by God, we better get get an expansionist foreign policy going across the sea. And uh, whether we take over places formally or don't, we, we need to get access to foreign raw materials and we need to get more and more foreigners buying our manufactured goods and our excess farm produce. The idea was we need to get more foreigners to buy our stuff And if they don't want to buy our stuff, we'll make them, right? If their governments, even if their governments are representing the wishes of their people in this, if their governments try to keep American goods out of a particular country, then it is the job of the American government to use force to force them open so that American businesses and farmers and so on can sell their crap to these various parts of the world. And of course, at the time, a big one on everyone's minds was Asia and the war against Spain and the war to occupy the Philippines as an American colony um, covered in the episodes, I guess, like seven, eight, nine, something like that um, of this podcast. Those were all driven, not entirely, but in large part by this idea that America had to expand or its system would, you know, atrophy and, and collapse from within another thing that came out of the, roughly the same time period in the 1890s um, and, and early 1900s was this concept of the open door, which was first articulated by the American Secretary of State under William McKinley, uh, John Hay. Uh, he also served as Secretary of State for part of Teddy Roosevelt's presidency as well. And the idea was that there's a lot of Chinamen, so if they buy our excess crap That's good for us. Now, it's obviously the exact opposite of today's situation. Back then, it was America making just about everything and trying to get China to buy their stuff. um, Kind of the opposite of what it is in more modern times. So there, there were nationalists in China who wanted to keep foreigners out. At this time, China, you know, turn of the century, was a very weak country and outside powers, including the United States, but also the British... The Russians, the Japanese, the French, I think even the Germans to a degree, were all trying to get at least a piece of China as their sphere of influence. And many of them did. But the United States's approach was they wanted all of China to be open to everybody so that Americans could you know, potentially come in there and uh, outcompete against the European imperial powers and sell lots of stuff to Chinese people so the the idea of the open door articulated in the so-called open door notes, was that a country should be open economically to the world, um, whether it's people want to be or not. It should give um, the businesses of the world access to their raw materials, and it should also give business of the world access to the markets of that country. And then what Williams does in Tragedy of American diplomacy is he takes this theme and he finds it running through uh, the rest of American history up until the time that he was writing in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. I think he originally published the book in the late 50s and then published a revised version um, a few years later with a little bit of later uh, history in it. And he argues that for the most part, regardless of the party in charge, the U.S. government generally followed this idea that it was America's job to, it was the job of the American government to make sure that American businesses had access to both the resources and the markets of the world. And so businesses, in a way, are kind of like socializing their costs of getting access to foreign markets and resources onto the taxpayer by having the American government do it. And then, you know, in the process, anytime a country resists, uh, the American government goes in and batters down the doors to open things up. And so he finds... You know, most of America's early 20th century wars motivated by this and even a lot of the early phases of the Cold War motivated by this. And he pointed out that the United States um, had long acted in a very aggressive way and in a lot of ways was more aggressive externally than the Soviet Union had been, particularly in the early years of the Cold War. Now, what makes this a tragedy, Williams says, is that in the process of following this idea That the United States government should be trying to economically open the world to American business. In the process of pursuing that, the United States government had abandoned or at least, you know, become hypocrites on a lot of the principles that supposedly were the defining principles of the United States government as such. Principles such as those articulated in the Declaration of Independence about national self-determination, the right of a people to... You know, decide what government they want to live under. Well, in the process of pursuing this concept of making the world an open door for American business, the U.S. government often did things like overthrowing other countries' governments, including governments that were popularly elected by the people of those countries. Along the way, Williams is extremely critical of the American establishment, the power elite, and how not only hypocritical, but even short-sighted they often are when adopting particular policies or greenlighting certain operations or wars or whatever. He even anticipates, though he doesn't use the term, the concept of blowback, talks about how oftentimes the American government's meddling in a country ends up down the road, making that country way more anti-American, often leading to a revolutionary backlash where people take over that country who are really anti-American. And it's directly a consequence of the United States government meddling in there in the first place. And go check out my episodes on Uncle Sam versus democracy for a couple of specific examples of this in the early Cold War in the 1950s. Those are episodes 31 and 32, by the way. Just a a little excerpt of Williams criticizing the American elite for their narrow mindedness and and all that. Um, Thus, even by itself, this is a quote, thus, even by itself, the elitism generated terror about what was done as well as about how the decisions were made. Such dismay was deepened by the elite's self-isolation from the nature of reality, by its loss of the power of critical thought, by its exaggerated confidence in American economic strength and military might, by its own arrogance and self-righteousness, and by its messianic distortion of a sincere humanitarian desire to help other peoples." Even the American public came more and more to be considered as simply another factor to be manipulated and controlled in the effort to establish and maintain the American way as the global status quo. In one great paragraph in Tragedy, Williams talks about three conceptions that guide American foreign policy and how ultimately the third overrules the first two. Quote, In the realm of ideas and ideals, American policy is guided by three conceptions. One is the warm, generous humanitarian impulse to help other people solve their problems. By the way, Williams did acknowledge that there were ideas and ideologies, some of them seemingly noble at play here, that it was not all economic self-interest, by the way. Anyway, back to the quote. A second principle is the principle of self-determination applied at the international level, which asserts the right of every society to establish its own goals or objectives, and to realize them internally through the means it decides are appropriate. These two ideas can be reconciled. Indeed, they complement each other to an extensive degree. But the third idea generated by many Americans is one which insists that other people, cannot really solve their problems and improve their lives unless they go about it in the same way as the United States. End quote. So you got this idea of wanting to help people, this idea of wanting people to have self determination, and then this idea of the American way is the right way. And um, other countries who don't closely follow the American approach to things um, must be, you know, intervened with. And of course, if this also correspondingly as beneficial to American business, well, that's just a happy coincidence, of course. Later on, though, Williams points out that there's something, in a way, even worse, and it's this very corporate idea I just talked about. Quote, Unfortunately, there is an even more troublesome element involved in the economic aspect of American foreign policy. That is the firm conviction, even dogmatic belief, that America's domestic well-being depends upon such sustained, ever-increasing overseas economic expansion. Here is a conversion of economic practice with intellectual analysis and emotional involvement that creates a very powerful and dangerous propensity to define the essentials of American welfare in terms of activities outside the United States. It is dangerous for two reasons. First, it leads to an indifference toward, or neglect of, internal developments which are nevertheless of primary importance. And second, this strong tendency to externalize the sources or causes of good things leads naturally enough to an even greater inclination to explain the lack of the good life by blaming it on foreign individuals, groups, and nations." This kind of externalizing evil serves not only to antagonize the outsiders, but further intensifies the American determination to make them over in the proper manner or simply push them out of the way, end quote. Well, anyway, I, I highly recommend that you check out The Tragedy of American Diplomacy if you're at all interested in the idea of how America has historically related to the world again. It's mostly focused on the first 60 years or so of the 20th century, though it does uh, talk a bit about things before that. Now, aside from the tragedy of American diplomacy, one of my other favorites out of Williams's books that I've read is a lesser known one entitled America Confronts a Revolutionary World, 1776 to 1976, which was, of course, published in the year of the United States as Bicentennial. Now, 1976 was also still in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War and Watergate, and these were things that as Williams argues here and as Zinn argues in People's History of the United States that we'll get to later, you look at Vietnam and Watergate, these are things that could have, should have caused Americans to fundamentally question, radically, you know, at the root, a lot of their assumptions and a lot of the bases of their system, but ultimately didn't because in the case of both Vietnam and Watergate, the The deeper analysis of the root of those problems was shunted aside by politicians, by the media, and by most kind of like establishment intellectuals. So the American establishment portrayed Vietnam as, oh, a tragic error, you know, that um, either was a war that shouldn't have been fought, but oops, we, we got into it and, and then got, got stuck in a quagmire. Or, well, it was a war that should have been fought, but unfortunately we didn't fight it the correct way. We should have taken a different approach. We should have done a better job at public relations, that sort of thing. And in the case of Watergate, you get the um, a few bad apples sort of a defense. Like, oh yeah, Nixon and a few of his cronies were, were bad guys, but look at that, the system worked and, and they got flushed out. And in both cases, Vietnam and Watergate, the American people never really, and again, they were encouraged not to and in large part prevented from by the establishment, the American people never really looked deep. They never really thought like, wait a minute, are there, are there certain deeper fundamental problems with America's approach to foreign policy that led to Vietnam? Are there even moral problems we, we should consider? Maybe we ought to rethink our whole approach to the world. No, 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 no. It's just one minor error here, right? Everything else is fine. Nothing to see here. And the same thing with Watergate. The reality was Nixon's administration did things far worse than Watergate. I mean, just to use one example, they're messing around with Cambodia, created just some of the worst you know, horrors of the 20th century. And what they get in trouble for is a botched third-rate burglary and the resultant botched third-rate cover-up Furthermore, plenty of other modern presidents are guilty of things as bad, or I would suspect probably worse than Watergate. You know, Lyndon Johnson is a whole host of horrible things that he did or, or is alleged to have done, many of which make Watergate look like a birthday party. And and same thing of, of many presidents before Johnson and many presidents after Nixon. But It's the typical, you know, the establishment throws the Nixon administration under the bus and says, yep, couple bad apples. Let's move on. Let's get back to normal. Right. So one of the things I think Williams is struggling with in America confronts revolutionary world is how come the American people just seemed completely not inclined to question things deeply, despite the significant traumas and scandals of Vietnam and Watergate? Why did they only keep their analysis and their criticism superficial? You know, sure, the establishment was encouraging them uh, to be there, but, you know, you have to be willing to be controlled to a degree, to be controlled in terms of your intellect. So as such, what Williams does in this book is he links things like Watergate and Vietnam to trends and themes and ideas in American history that go back to the beginning. So quote from this book, One cannot truly be traumatized by Richard Milhouse Nixon and his hunker-down-in-the-bunker crowd if one knows about Andrew Jackson, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt to name only four other presidents who were also artisans of evasion and distortion and masters of the craft of accumulating power unto themselves. In a similar way, a feel for history leaves one deeply unimpressed by all the relieved and congratulatory talk about how the system worked to control Nixon. For a sense of history illuminates the crucial factor. Those other men were also ultimately controlled, but the process that they personified and carried forward has not been controlled." End quote. In this book, Williams argues that Americans have intellectually severed themselves from the past, and yet they also fear the future. So basically what Americans are doing, whether they realize it or not, most Americans, what they try to do is kind of like hit the pause button of history at whatever is their preferred juncture. Quote from Williams. We have struggled so obsessively to preserve the American present and in the process have attempted to control history that we have distorted our ideals and ceased to deal effectively, let alone creatively, with reality. And of course, this explains why America, ostensibly founded on revolutionary ideals, has, ever since about the 1790s, opposed most revolutions in other parts of the world. Now, as in tragedy, Williams in America confronts a revolutionary world argues that a combination of American exceptionalist ideas and American expansionism as an ideology have largely overridden America's supposed commitment to ideas such as self-determination, as, of course, articulated most famously in the Declaration of Independence. And Williams actually finds this happening uh, far earlier in american history than most people might think for example he talks about the constitution as a centralizing and even imperial system that started to undo local self-determination of real american communities way back in the 1780s and 90s so here's williams writing on the constitution from this point of view quote both the british empire until about 1763 and the articles of confederation allowed great freedom For the citizens of each unit, the individual colony and state, to develop their own particular arrangement of society. If that had not been the case, then we could not talk about the cultural differences that emerged between 1620 and 1776. The Articles, meaning the Articles of Confederation, also provided that those units, the individual states, would act together only under very carefully defined circumstances and only through specified procedures. No one government could lay down the law for everyone. But the Constitution created a different arrangement of the parts and their relationships, and was thus a revolution that produced a structural change. It established the foundation of a superstate, a political giant that had the power to override any single state or culture. It did so by making population the bedrock of power. A majority could now impose its will upon any minority. That inherently, and also practically, subverted the right of people who prefer a different arrangement of the parts to live according to their ideas. And that in turn involved nothing less than the destruction of the ideal underlying the American Revolution of 1776, the revolutionary right of self-determination. Thus, we must, at the outset, be prepared to face the basic question posed by our revolutionary tradition— Either we believe in the right of self-determination as the basis for creating communities composed of people who come to agree among themselves about the arrangement of all the parts, and he means all the parts of society, or we define the right of self-determination as the basis for some people to project or impose their arrangement of the parts upon everyone else. It is easy to talk about the way other countries violate the first option about their empires. But if we are to honor our revolution, then we must talk about the way that we have dishonored our central tradition. So very much taking a decentralist standpoint, uh, pro-Articles of Confederation over the Constitution standpoint, and even explicitly saying that the Constitution was a repudiation of a lot of the ideals that you know, motivated the American Revolution, especially in its early phases. And he has a similar take on the Civil War, too. He sees the Civil War, while he's no fan of slavery and no supporter of the Confederate government being a great government, nonetheless, he supports the idea of self-determination. And so he sees the Civil War as, like the Constitution, a massively centralizing phenomenon that continued to undo the ideas of self-determination of real communities. So Williams writes in this book about the Civil War, quote, Put simply, the cause of the Civil War was the refusal of Lincoln and other Northerners to honor the revolutionary right of self-determination, the touchstone of the American Revolution. The act of imposing one people's morality upon another people is an imperial denial of self-determination. Once begin the process of denying it to others in its own name, and there is no end of empire except war and more war. End quote. And throughout the rest of the book, Williams continues to apply this analysis to many other uh, themes and eras and events in American history. And again, I, I really enjoyed this book. It's probably my favorite book of his, and I um, highly recommend it if you're at all interested in these topics. And I just want to read to you the last, you know, paragraph and change of America confronts a revolutionary world. Quote, hence, all I can say to you is that I prefer to die as a free man struggling to create a human community than as a pawn of empire. So make your choice. Continue the treadmill exercise of trying to preserve the present or accept the challenge of creating our own future. But at least make it as the decision of a consciously self-determined human being who understands what is involved and is ready to accept the consequences. Let us together find rest from vain fancies end quote now the next historian i want to talk about is gabriel kolko last name spelled k-o-l-k-o and kolko was born in new jersey in 1932 he got a bachelor's degree from kent state university a master's degree from the university of wisconsin where he studied under william appleman williams and a phd from harvard of uh, the latter in 1962 After that, he taught at several universities and eventually settled at York University in Toronto, Canada, where he taught for the rest of his career. Most of his work was either about the progressive era in America in the early 20th century or about 20th century American foreign policy and wars. And in both areas, he was a staunch revisionist of the standard narrative respective to those two particular areas of American history. Colco died fairly recently, actually, um, in Amsterdam in 2014 at the age of 81. Now, Colco has some great books on American foreign policy and modern American wars that I highly recommend. But the book I'm going to talk about in this episode is his most famous and influential work, I believe, of history, which is entitled The Triumph of Conservatism, and which was first published in 1963. And this is a very, very myth-busting book. And the myth it particularly explodes piece by piece is the following myth, which I talked about a bit in my episode on American progressivism way back in episode 12. This is a book I think I've mentioned several times in different episodes of the podcast, but now I'm going to talk about it in a bit more detail probably than I have before. And the myth that Colco is busting is along the lines of this. By the latter years of the 19th century, the United States economy had become very monopolistic, just sort of naturally. Um, Competition was going away, and the progressives, the progressive uh, politicians and reformers stood up against big business to rein in their power and abuses and restore fairness and competition to the economy. And that, as such, enlightened reformers with popular support, devised and implemented various reform measures and regulatory programs and boards and so on of the era, and that, of course, big business opposed all these reforms and regulations because these were things that would hurt them. And the reality, as Colco systematically proves with mountains of facts in the triumph of conservatism, is that, in fact, around the turn of the century, from the 19th to the 20th century, the United States economy was actually getting more, not less, competitive in almost every field by almost every measure in industry after industry. And, and, Colco does the work. Colco does the nuts and bolts connecting the dots, detective work, you know, looking at specific businesses and industries and so on. And he finds that in industry after industry, the number of firms competing uh, was more from year to year around the turn of the century, not less. Things were becoming more competitive, not less. And that, in fact, it was established big businesses that wanted to reduce competition drastically. They were the ones that didn't want to have to compete. And after all, why would you? If you're already one of the biggest firms in an industry, um, competition now doesn't sound like a very good idea anymore, does it? Wouldn't it be great if you could just sort of freeze the economy through various cartelization schemes? Um, At a point where your particular firm is one of the dominant firms or the dominant firm in your industry, rather than having to keep competing against, you know, hungry, aggressive, new up and coming companies all the time. Oh, man, that's tough. That's tough. Rather have stability, rather just be able to hit the freeze button. Right. I mean, if you were playing king of the mountain and you get up to the top of the mountain, wouldn't it be great if you could just sort of like spray Pam all over the sides of the mountain and, you know, prevent your competitors from challenging you? So in Kolko's portrayal of the progressive era, that's really what the progressive movement and all those reforms were all about. In reality, the big firms had tried to put together things like cartels and merger arrangements on the free market, and they hadn't worked. Because the free market always, sooner or later, usually within about a year or two, the free market would naturally bust these sorts of schemes um, because competition, you know even if you got all the top firms in an industry to agree to do something like cut production and raise prices number 1 one of the firms or more one or more of the firms that are part of the agreement might not keep their word and might start dropping their prices and competing and number 2 even if all the firms that were a party to a cartel agreement kept their word and cut production and raised prices you still have the problem of in a, in a true free market economy or, or a mostly free market economy, new firms starting up that are not part of the cartel agreement and that immediately start competing. And so this is why prior to the progressive era, all these attempts to create cartel and merger and you know, quasi-monopoly arrangements on the free market had failed. And they were busted without any government action. They were busted simply through the workings of a competitive marketplace. And so it was actually these big businesses themselves who were the ones trying all these schemes that eventually decided, well, you can't do these things and make them stick on a free market. You need to get the state involved as an enforcer and guarantor of these sorts of agreements to cartelize industries and raise prices and so on. And so it was big business and not enlightened reformers who devised and implemented the various reform measures and programs and so on of the progressive era. In fact, they sponsored, supported, and guided most so-called progressive politicians and policies in order to benefit the big businesses at the expense of their real or potential competitors. And sometimes the big businessmen would even in public pretend like they opposed some particular regulatory Uh, scheme or program for their industry. And in reality, they were the ones that were helping the politicians who were pushing those measures. And Colco really deserves a lot of credit for doing the arduous, nuts and bolts detective work of looking at all these different firms looking at you know who's supporting what politicians and so on and looking at what are these these regulations who are they really helping and he finds that time after time after time it is the industries themselves the firm the biggest firms in particular themselves who are oftentimes devising and pushing for uh, major government regulation of those industries in other words, the various progressive reforms of the early 20th century were trying to limit rather than to encourage competition and were actually benefiting big businesses rather than uh, restraining them or reining them in as so many people still to this day believe. And again, if you still believe in this this narrative, and this book, Triumph of Conservatism, has been in print for like 50 years, a little over 50 years. And if you still believe that you know, Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson and these guys were, you know, really standing up strong against big business and reining them in and blah, blah, blah. Go read this book. Go read this book. I mean, it is so well documented. Colco has so much supporting evidence and detail for all of his uh, arguments. As far as I know, no one has really refuted the the main arguments of this book, even though it's 50 years old. Just one short quote from Colco that sums up A lot of this thesis, quote, ironically, contrary to the consensus of historians, it was not the existence of monopoly that caused the federal government to intervene in the economy, but the lack of it. End quote. Well, Colco goes through example after example of how in a particular industry, it was the large firms themselves who wanted regulation, usually as a way to hobble their smaller up and coming competition, because you see, it's it's a total myth That large firms can always outcompete small firms. That's true in some particular industries, but very often it's not. Very often the smaller company is actually more nimble, quicker to adapt to changes in technology or changes in consumer preferences and so on. And the larger corporation tends to, just like big government, become bureaucratic and as an institution kind of stupid and slow. But Regulations, especially if they're somewhat burdensome, always disproportionately hobble the smaller competitor against the large, because, you know, let's say, let's just use one example of retail, right? Let's say the government tomorrow comes out with a series of regulations that require retail, retail stores to do 10,000 pages of dense legalese paperwork every year to stay legally in business. Now, that obviously imposes a cost and a a hurdle on every retail business, doesn't it? But who gets hurt by it disproportionately? Walmart or a small mom and pop place with just a handful of employees? I think the answer is pretty clear, right? I mean, Walmart can hire an army of attorneys without affecting its profit margin in any significant way, whose entire job of this army of attorneys is just to make sure Walmart's compliant with all these regulations. Whereas the mom and pop shop can't do it. They can't afford to hire an army of attorneys, um, and the the people actually running the shop, the mom-and-pop shop, have neither the time nor the expertise to do the paperwork themselves. And so this is why even regulations that don't seem to be aimed at hobbling smaller competitors by default typically are. And um, a great example of this, by the way, is a documentary film entitled, I think it's Beer Wars. I'll see if I can look it up. And if I, if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes as one of my Amazon links. And it shows how just using the beer industry, the modern beer industry, it's the big beer corporations that use government regulations in order to make things difficult for their smaller competitors. So in Triumph of Conservatism, Colco goes through many industries and finds this same phenomenon of the firms themselves wanting the regulation. And I'll just mention one specific case study that's one of the many he goes through in the book, and that is the case of meat inspection in the early 20th century resulting in the regulations under Teddy Roosevelt's administration. I can't remember if I, if I mentioned this specific example in my episode on American progressivism or not, so I'll go ahead and share it here just in case... I didn't, and if I did, well, you'll hear it again, but it just illustrates the point. The myth about meat inspection goes like this. In 1906, Upton Sinclair wrote a best-selling book called The Jungle, which, among other things, exposed horrific conditions and sanitation practices in American meatpacking plants. And enlightened reformers delivered on the public's demand after reading this book um for regulations for federal meat inspection. And the meat packing industry was opposed to all this because of course they wanted to keep selling the public bad meat. Luckily great reformers like Teddy Roosevelt who was president at the time delivered on cleaning up the meat. Now, most of that myth is untrue other than the fact that, yes, Upton Sinclair wrote a book called The Jungle that got a lot of public opinion agitated for meat inspection. The reality, though, was this. The big meat packing companies themselves, most of which, by the way, such as Swift and Armor, are still around today. They had been pushing for federal meat inspection, universal federal meat inspection, since the 1880s and actually got somewhat of an inspection program on the books in 1891, again, at their behest for meat that will be exported outside of the country. But the reason that they wanted meat inspection were for their own benefit. There were two main things motivating the large meat packing companies wanting massive federal inspections and regulation. And those motives were as follows. Number one, European governments were being pressured by their own domestic beef producers To say that American meat was bad and untrustworthy. And of course, the reason that European meat producers would would be pushing this story is not because they really thought American meat was going to kill everybody, but because they wanted to keep out competition. And, you know, America was able to produce cheaper beef than Europe could. So the story that the European meat producers would tell to their own governments is, well, you got to ban American beef because it's not always inspected by their central government. So it's not trustworthy, blah, blah, blah. So the big meat packing company said, well, if we um, have federal meat inspection, that at least takes away that argument from Europeans uh, to back up banning American meat. And of course, the other reason that the big meatpacking companies wanted massive inspection was because smaller localized meatpacking companies were actually outcompeting the so-called big six meatpacking companies in many local markets. Again, a case where you know meat meatpacking is one of those cases where the smaller competitor can often outcompete the larger competitor, especially in some particular local or regional market. And again, the idea I mentioned before with my example of retail, but applied here, that any kind of regulation is going to disproportionately hobble smaller competitors um, as opposed to larger competitors. Here's the reality. Even before the jungle got widespread readership, the big meatpacking companies were already pushing for federal meat inspection. In fact, J. Ogden Armour, then the head of the Armour Meat Company, wrote an editorial in 1906 in what I think was the biggest or one of the biggest papers at the time, the Saturday Evening Post, in which he urged the government to pass the act. He even said something along the lines of, large meatpacking companies have always been in favor of meat inspection and regulation. So, large meatpacking companies, they also saw the government's stamp of approval as sort of an insurance to the public, so that the public would... Would be more trusting of the meat they were getting again, and, and of course would prevent them from being terrified away from eating meat by Upton Sinclair's book. The key here was that the taxpayer and not the meat packing companies themselves would be footing the bill for all of the inspection. Now, Upton Sinclair, by the way, this is a side note, he wrote The Jungle primarily to cause sympathy for the workers who were generally poor immigrants in these meat packing uh, plants, but instead, the upper middle class and affluent class uh, progressives who read the book, they read it and instead of saying, "Wow, those workers have such bad conditions," let's let's uh, pass regulations to help that. They instead just focused entirely on like the nasty sanitation and so on, and and said, "Oh, what, what, what my meat has what in it," and pushed for regulation of the meat rather than any type of reforms aimed at helping out the workers in that instance. Upton Sinclair um, supposedly quipped about how things worked out. Something along the lines of, I aimed at America's heart and instead hit its stomach. So anyway, um, that phenomenon, again, happens in industry after industry. That's just one relatively small example that Colco exposes. So, highly recommend this book. It shows you that the notion that big businesses and big businessmen want a free market economy, want a true laissez-faire economy with no government intervention, is most of the time, the opposite of the truth. In reality, the larger a firm is, the more dominant it is in its industry right now, the more the more likely it is to be a supporter of government intervention and regulation in that particular industry. And again, I'd, I'd urge you to check out that book. And Kolko also has great stuff on foreign policy, again, largely like in the case of his Former teacher Williams in the vein of anti-imperialism, anti-intervention, you know, being very critical of how the American elite, the American establishment have run American foreign policy, particularly the last hundred or so years. He also has some great analysis and criticism of the state of Israel and the relationship between the United States and Israel, which is particularly interesting given the fact that Gabriel Kolko is Jewish. So I guess you can't accuse him of being an anti-Semite and blame his uh, opposition to the state of Israel and its uh, policies on that. Now The last of my three historians I want to talk about in this episode is Howard Zinn, who I would guess is probably the most likely to be recognized, you know, name recognition by people who are not professional or at least, you know, very serious amateur historians. He had one of those rare things, a history book written by an academic historian that became a bestseller and that's the book i'm primarily going to be talking about uh, of his people's history of the united states howard zinn was born in brooklyn in 1922 and during world war ii still a very young man he was actually um on a bomber crew flying missions over europe he was actually the bombardier he was the guy looking through the norden bomb site and then dropping the bombs on those targets down below By the way, he later became a very harsh critic of strategic bombing in general and American bombing in the 20th century and early 21st century um, in particular. And it's very illuminating, illuminating, I think, to listen to or to read his analysis of America's preference for bombing as a way to try and, you know, fight wars on the cheap or fight wars while minimizing American casualties and How, you know, morally questionable so much of this is, because he's actually a guy who was a bombardier in World War II. After the war, he attended NYU as an undergraduate and then later got master's and Ph.D. degrees from Columbia University. After that, he taught at several universities before settling down at Boston University, where he taught for the rest of his career. And in addition to his academic work, he was active in various activist-type movements, including labor, civil rights, and anti-war activism. Zinn died in California in 2010 at the age of 87. His most famous and influential book, and the one I'll be talking about here, is A People's History of the United States, first published in 1980 and then republished with some updated material um, at least once, if not multiple times uh, since then. And again, it's one of those rare bestsellers written by an academic historian. And this book is a is one of those big picture books. It's a pretty big book. Covers American history from the colonial period, like literally starting with Columbus, um, all the way up through very recent history. And the entire way does so from a non-elite, anti-establishment point of view. You know, looking at American history from the point of view of groups that for most American historiography before the uh, the new left historians after World War II, most of American history prior to at least the 50s, was focused on the elite, was focused on the founding fathers, was focused on the great presidents, and so on and so forth. And so it was given, Well, while it may not have consisted of outright lies, it might have been things that were would be considered lies of omission, like we talked about back in episode 49, historical lies of omission, where you just leave certain things out of the narrative that... Don't jive with the larger point you're trying to make. You know, you're trying to talk about American history as nothing but a a wonderful, continuous progress of awesomeness and ever-increasing liberty and equality for all and so on. And, uh, well, you can't have that story have any plausibility if you talk about things like the experience of the poor, the experience of... Um, Other non-elite groups, right? Uh, Non-white ethnic groups, you know, most most glaringly uh, Native Americans and African Americans. You know, if you if you don't mention them much, if at all, in the narrative, then then you can plausibly talk about the American history of just endless awesomeness. We started off super duper free and awesome and just have gotten freer and awesomer ever since. But when you bring into the narrative perspectives and groups that had previously been just totally left out of the story that was told by historians, it really, really problematizes the whole thing and ultimately, I think, leaves the standard narrative totally untenable. I'm going to read you a passage from People's History of the United States. Uh, Towards the beginning of the book, right after Zinn kind of briefly talks about what the story of Columbus was like from the point of view of the Native Americans, particularly the Arawak uh, Caribbean Indians that he encountered early on. And then he uses that particular story to then elucidate the themes and and the approach that he's going to take for the rest of the book. So Zinn writes, quote, the treatment of heroes, Columbus, and their victims, the Arawaks, The quiet acceptance of conquest and murder in the name of progress is only one aspect of a certain approach to history in which the past is told from the point of view of governments, conquerors, diplomats, and leaders. It is as if they, like Columbus, deserve universal acceptance, as if they, the Founding Fathers, Jackson, Lincoln, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, the leading members of Congress, the famous justices of the Supreme Court, represent the nation as a whole. The pretense is that there really is such a thing as the United States, subject to occasional conflicts and quarrels, but fundamentally a community of people with common interests, It is as if there really is a, quote, national interest represented in the Constitution in territorial expansion in the laws passed by Congress, the decisions of the courts, the development of capitalism, the culture of education and the mass media. And then I'll skip a few paragraphs down and um, continuing with the words of Zinn, quote, my viewpoint in telling the history of the United States is different, that we must not accept the memory of states as our own. Nations are not communities, and never have been. The history of any country, presented as the history of a family, conceals fierce conflicts of interests, sometimes exploding most often repressed, between conquerors and conquered, masters and slaves, capitalists and workers, dominators and dominated in race and sex. And in such a world of conflict, a world of victims and executioners, it is the job of thinking people not to be on the side of the executioners." Quote. So just to run through a bunch of the ways in which uh, Zinn challenges the kind of typical earlier standard narrative of American history, um when talking about the colonial period for example he mostly looks at in the case of virginia the ways in which the virginia colonial elite exploited and kept in their place both poor white indentured servants and black slaves later looking at the american revolutionary era Uh, Zinn points out the ways in which the homegrown American elite kind of co-opted this revolution and uh, used it for their own purposes and, and in a lot of ways steered it away from any type of really revolutionary thoughts that might potentially have targeted the local power elite in their crosshairs. So just some quotes on that topic. Around 1776, certain important people in the English colonies made a discovery that would prove enormously useful useful for the next 200 years. They found that by creating a nation, a symbol, a legal unity called the United States, they could take over land, profits, and political power from favorites of the British Empire. In the process, they could hold back a number of potential rebellions and create a consensus of popular support for the rule of a new privileged leadership. When we look at the American Revolution this way, it is a work of genius, and the Founding Fathers deserve the awed tribute they have received over the centuries. They created the most effective system of national control devised in modern times and showed future generations of leaders the advantages of combining paternalism with command." He argues that during the Revolutionary War, the American homegrown elite, co-opted and paid lip service to enough middle and even kind of lower middle class, uh, grievances and causes to get themselves, um, legitimacy from those lower, lower classes. And that, uh, they, they really were only kind of paying lips, lip service to these things, though they were not really trying to empower the lower orders of society in any way or to bring about any sort of equality. They wanted to keep themselves as a tenured aristocracy but give the people the illusion that they were getting empowered by this revolution. And he argues that the Constitution was a pretty dramatic counter-revolution in a lot of ways that empowered the elite. That it brought enough of kind of the middle part of society into the political process and gave them... a a little token symbolic say, which really didn't amount to much, but made them feel like they were a part of the project so that they could then form a buffer against the truly lower classes of society, those who obviously did not benefit much, if at all, from the American Revolution, namely uh, non-white ethnic groups and the poor. Among the other typical narratives in American history that uh, Zinn challenges in this book is the story of the Civil War, and he, he really problematizes that one and while certainly he's not in any way sympathizing with the southern elite and confederate government he also is not willing to reiterate the fairy tale deification of lincoln and of the union war effort in general as being this great humanitarian crusade Zinn points out quote it was the national government which while weakly enforcing the law that was supposed to end the slave trade sternly enforced the laws providing for the return of fugitives to slavery. It was the national government that, in Andrew Jackson's administration, collaborated with the South to keep abolitionist literature out of the mails in the Southern States. It was the Supreme Court of the United States that declared in 1857 that the slave Dred Scott could not sue for his freedom because he was not a person but property. Such a national government would never accept an end to slavery by rebellion. It would end slavery only under conditions controlled by whites and only when required by the political and economic needs of the business elite of the North. It was Abraham Lincoln who combined perfectly the needs of business, the political ambition of the new Republican Party, and the rhetoric of humanitarianism. He also, like many historians, points out. Uh, Lincoln's own racism and and the notion that he was some sort of like, you know, civil rights figure is pretty ridiculous in a lot of ways. And in general, he takes a, a very challenging look against the war all around. For example, he wrote the following, quote, The clash was not over slavery as a moral institution. Most Northerners did not care enough about slavery to make sacrifices for it. Certainly not the sacrifice of war. It was not a clash of peoples. Most northern whites were not economically favored, not politically powerful. Most southern whites were poor farmers, not decision makers, but of elites. The northern elite wanted economic expansion. Free land, free labor, a free market, a high protective tariff for manufacturers, a bank of the United States. The slave interests opposed all that. They saw Lincoln and the Republicans as making continuation of their pleasant and prosperous way of life impossible in the future. End quote. And overall, that that sums up my general take on the Civil War, which is, you know, it's a war of a couple of crooked, manipulative, exploiting elites, neither of which is really concerned with human liberty. I mean, the end of slavery was a wonderful welcome side effect of the war, but it was not a major aim of the Union when they commenced hostilities. Or as Zinn sums it up, quote, the American government had set out to fight the slave states in 1861 not to end slavery but to retain the enormous national territory and market and resources yet victory required a crusade and the momentum of that crusade brought new forces into national politics end quote which you know included um, the end of slavery to kind of have some sort of great moral cause partway through the war once the casualties were really mounting you know, it's it's no longer when you have hundreds of thousands dead and maimed, it no longer is enough to just talk about making the South keep paying the tariff and you need some greater humanitarian veneer to use as the alibi. That's how I would I would put it. Anyway, he's got very interesting challenges to so many aspects of American history going all the way up through the 20th century, um, including stuff on, on Vietnam, stuff on, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s. And even up to the start of the 20th century, if you have, like I do, uh, one of the more recently published editions of the book. One of the more interesting chapters in the entire book is called The Coming Revolt of the Guards, in which he talks about, and this is most of the way through the book, I think there's only another couple chapters after this chapter, Um, he he says the following about what he's written up to this point, quote, It is a history disrespectful of governments and respectful of people's movements of resistance. That makes it a biased account, one that leans in a certain direction. I am not troubled by that because the mountain of history books under which we all stand leans so heavily in the other direction, so tremblingly respectful of states and statesmen, and so disrespectful by inattention to people's movements that we need some counterforce to avoid being crushed into submission. And he, he talks about some class warfare stuff in here, but it's, it's not as simple as... Wealthy versus poor, though, that's one of the aspects of it as he describes it. But he also talks a lot about those who are plugged into the state. He's this weird sort of amorphous blending of socialism and anarchism, kind of almost left anarchist in a way, which is hard to pin down, but is an interesting point of view and does, you know, illuminate a lot of important things that previously were hidden or obscured in American history. But in this chapter, he talks about his hope that some sort of revolutionary movement amongst the sort of average people will eventually pop up. quote, "In a highly developed society, the establishment cannot survive without the obedience and loyalty of millions of people who are given small rewards to keep the system going. The soldiers and police, teachers and ministers, administrators and social workers, technicians and production workers, doctors, lawyers, nurses, transport and communications workers, garbagemen and firemen. These people, the employed, the somewhat privileged, are drawn into alliance with the elite. They become the guards of the system, buffers between the upper and lower classes. If they stop obeying, the system fails. That will happen, I think, only when all of us, who are slightly privileged and slightly uneasy, begin to see that we are like the guards in the prison uprising in Attica, expendable, that the establishment... Whatever rewards it gives us will also, if necessary to maintain its control, kill us, end quote. So overall, I think this is a great book worth reading. I certainly don't agree with all of his uh, ideological takes on things, but, you know, it brought in the perspectives of lots of groups that had previously been just totally left out of the historical narrative. He aggressively goes after the establishment, identifies it, and and shows how it um you know, exists and uses the force of the state for its own benefit. And he frequently harps on the illusion of choice in America's two party system throughout most of American history, which again, I think is is wonderful uh, analysis and great that he provides all these examples to back it up. I have some criticisms of the book for sure. I think it's fairly weak on economic analysis and on related issues like the federal reserve. Um, I don't always agree on his take on, on class warfare and labor issues though. Sometimes I do. Um, but he also, where I differ from his analysis, is Zinn retains some sort of a faith in democracy as ultimately the solution to, you know, most of society's problems, and I'm not so sold on that, uh, to put it mildly. So anyway, those are those are the three leftist historians that I think, if you're any sort of a libertarian type person, you ought to read if you haven't already. These historians uh, William Appleman Williams, Gabriel Kolko, and Howard Zinn are solidly aligned with true libertarians on a range of important issues, including opposition to war. And by the way, if you're a pro-war libertarian, I'm sorry, but you're not really a libertarian. There, I had to say it. Okay, How can you claim to be a libertarian and be a hawk, a pro-war cheerleader, right? I mean, that's, that's as absurd as saying, I'm a vegan and I eat veal. Right. I mean, like, not only do you eat meat, you eat like one of the most brutal, morally questionable forms of meat there is. Right. Well, to say I'm a libertarian, that that's supposed to mean I'm against the state. And then if you say, but I'm pro war, that's the worst thing the state does out of everything, because it includes all of the other evils the state does on a smaller scale uh, elsewhere. I mean, how can you say that, you know, food stamps are, are a moral atrocity, but bombing cities is uh, morally justified. I mean, that's that's just insane. But uh, sorry about the side rant there. Anyway, um, among the other issues that these three historians clearly align with libertarians would be such things as support of civil, li- civil liberties, opposition to corporate cronyism and corporate welfare, and just sort of overall being decentralist and anti-establishment and so on. Now, there's obviously some difference between these three on particularly economics and related issues. They tend to be more favorable, especially in the case of Zinn, to welfare state-type programs, and they tend to be more favorable to um, labor union-type things than most most libertarians would be. And in the case of Colco, uh, I think Colco identified as like, um, you know, a, a pretty staunch socialist. Colco um, actually, by the way, apparently found out eventually that Many libertarians, such as Murray Rothbard, were very um, full of praise about his work, and he was apparently annoyed at it. But anyway, there's obviously a difference between a staunch libertarian and these guys on issues primarily related to economics. But you've got to ask yourself, uh, to paraphrase myself on Twitter the other day, if you had to make a choice, if you had a switch that could only go one way or the other, would you rather live in a, in a place that had peace and civil liberties, but food stamps? Or would you rather live in a place that had war, a police state, but no food stamps? You know, in other words, would you be willing to tolerate some of the uh, smaller problems of the state if it could cause you through some magical device or switch or whatever to get rid of the much more egregious evils of the state? I, for one, if I had that magical switch that only went to A or B, And A was, you know, a lot of personal liberty, but a bit of a welfare state. And B was no personal liberty, but no welfare state. I don't know about you, but I'd be more inclined to go with A. Well, you know, I'm in favor of abolishing the state altogether um, as the ultimate long-term goal. But I also believe that there ought to be some priorities. There ought to be some triage. There ought to be a a notion of start with the worst things first, you know, and then eventually uh, move on to the relatively minor things. Besides, if you're trying to actually further the revolution, um, the, the person-by-person revolutions within the individual mind, which I truly believe is the only way to bring about positive fundamental change. Intellectual revolution, individual by individual. What is more likely to help open people's eyes to the evils of the state? Subsidize school lunch programs for poor kids or the dropping of bombs on innocent civilians? Which one for most people who are, you know, just kind of typical just kind of typical mainstream people, which one is more likely to cause people to kind of have a little bit of a red pill experience and go, Whoa, the state's actually pretty friggin' dark? I think the dropping of bombs on innocent people is a little more clear cut to someone who's not already a libertarian as a as a bad thing than, you know, giving some poor kid a uh free free milk at school. Again, I think it's a matter of priorities and triage and you know, what actually garners people's attention and gets them to see things for what they really are. And also, like I said, way back towards the beginning of this episode, and it went long, but I'm hoping that you won't mind since I haven't done an episode for a while that I did a long one this time. But like I said, back towards the beginning, I I think also that it's good to read people that you know you will not always agree with, as long as they're honest, they're thoughtful, they're not You know, party hacks just trying to sell you on something. And these three historians, again, regardless of how much you may or may not disagree with them on specific issues, these three historians I've talked about today fit that description. They're honest, they're thoughtful, and they're not party hacks just selling you something. Oh, and they also have lots of uh, logic and evidence to back up their claims most of the time, so that's also good too. Do not get intellectual tunnel vision. There's nothing wrong with reading people that you agree with, but if that's all that you ever read, that's, you know, your brain is like inbreeding in a way. Um, you got to get around more, right? You got to get out more. And just because you're reading different points of view and considering their arguments and their evidence doesn't mean you always have to adopt them. You could still come away thinking, well, I understand the argument. I looked at the evidence, but I still think they've got this or that wrong or whatever. Anyway, before I do my usual show wrap up, I just want to give a shout out for Ian Freeman and the folks at LRN.FM, who, of course, are kind enough to carry my show on their podcast roster. Um, Right now, they're running an Indiegogo campaign to try and get LRN.FM available again via satellite in Africa. Um, Apparently, until recently, LRN.FM was available in Africa, but then that changed and now they need to raise funds kind of in a hurry to get it back on again. So, you know, helping to beam messages of liberty into a part of the world that more than almost anywhere else you can think of really could sorely use those types of ideas. So I'll put a link to the Indiegogo campaign in the show notes for this episode on the website profcj.org. So if you want to help out, um, you can donate, you can, um, you know, certain donations, you get various types of prizes and so on. I'll let you go look at the page to see what's there, but it's a, it's a great cause. Um, I highly recommend you consider chipping in if you have a few extra bucks. As always, if you have any comments about this particular episode, please feel free to post them in the comment section for the episode at profcj.org, and you can also email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe to the show on various podcast venues, including iTunes and Stitcher. Remember, there are several ways you can help to support the show. One is just to spread the word any way you can to anyone you think might be interested in what I have to say. Also, please consider leaving a review or a rating in places like iTunes or Stitcher to encourage others to give the show a listen. You can also help the show financially. You can donate directly directly profcj.org slash donate you can donate via paypal donate via uh, bitcoin i'm happy to take that as well or you can help the show financially by purchasing items from amazon by going through the links the affiliate links found on profcj.org and if you do that buy some stuff from amazon by going through my website first i get a little cut of that and it no extra cost to you so please consider supporting the show um any way you can I'm not a snob. I won't I won't be uh, angered or offended or anything at small donations. I'm I'm perfectly uh, grateful for any sort of help you can give me. So huge thanks to everyone who's donated uh, recently. And um, I hope if you haven't already and you like my show and you want to help it out, you will consider donating. So thanks for listening to the Dangerous History podcast. And uh, I'll catch you next time.